Good morning. My name is Liz Simmons, and I'm... Okay. Whoa. All right, well, that's... We're still doing shout-outs. That's cool. Uh, I'm the resident director in Martin Hall. And... Guys, I really wasn't expecting this. Um, and I have the unique privilege this, uh, this morning um, to tag team chapel with my dear friend and colleague, Jake Sinkovitz, who is the RD in the townhouses. Um, you must feel awkward. I don't know. Okay. Um, and so basically what's going to happen is I'm going to talk for a little bit, and then I'm literally going to tag him in so you don't have to listen to either one of us for the entirety of this time, which I think would be a win-win-win we could consider. Okay. Um, there's just one thing I feel like I need to get out of the way before we get started, um, and just to clear the air, and it is this. I want you to know that, watch what I do with my hands, I know that you know that I'm pregnant, okay? <laughs> this, I, thankfully, I'm past the food baby stage. Um, I felt like for a while I'd walk down the mallway and people would be like, is she pregnant? You know, it's just kind of awkward, and now that we're through that, I like to consider myself um, a sacred cow on campus, if that's okay. Um, so if I'm breathing heavily and really sweaty this morning, I'm going to blame it on the pregnancy and not that there are a zillion people in this room. Sounds good. Um, okay, so now that we've cleared the air, uh, would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Jesus Christ, word made flesh, let us come to your word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears this morning. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with eager expectation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I figured um, the best way to start any sermon in a chapel when you're intimidated, like I am, uh, would be to use a C.S. Lewis quote. Am I right? Can you really go wrong? Okay. Okay, so hear this from the four loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I think the reason that we're all here is for connection, right? And when I say here, I mean like on planet Earth in existence, we are here for connection. And when I say here, I also mean on this campus, like you're here to get a degree, but what's a degree worth without connection with others? And when I say connection, I also mean a sense of belonging and of genuine relationship with others. And I think, I think that connection has at least a little bit to do with 
vulnerability to love at all is to be vulnerable. Vulnerability. Um, gosh, I am getting real concerned that this word is reaching buzzword level status on our campus. Okay, I work in res life, so um, words like community, intentionality, like these words are so common that they lose their meaning, and I'm, I'm really afraid that vulnerability is, is losing its power. I think that or at least I hope that by now we've, have, we've abandoned this old definition of vulnerability that is something like weakness or to show weakness. I hope I'm, I, that I'm taking a leap. Um, maybe some of us don't value it, but I hope that we've abandoned that definition of vulnerability. Because how we define vulnerability says something about us. And at this point, I need to intro this incredible woman. Her name is Brene Brown. I don't know if you know her, but she's brilliant. Um, she calls herself a shame researcher. Her background is in social work. She's a research professor at the University of Houston, and she has spent countless hours interviewing people on uh, things like shame, worthiness, belonging, connectedness. She literally like wrote the book on this stuff, so if you want to hear more, you should Google her because her TED Talks are fabulous. This is what she says. And I needed to intro her because a lot of these thoughts are propelled by her work. Here's what she says. Vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. How's that for definition? Vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. And yet, catch this. Vulnerability is the first thing that I want to see in you and the last thing I want you to see in me. Isn't that so true? Vulnerability, it's the first thing that I want to see in you and the very last thing that I want you to see in me. How backwards, how hypocritical, how paradoxical that the thing that I need most from you your openness, your honesty, these things that like help me to trust you. They're, they're the things that we need from each other to trust each other, but the, they're the last things that we're sometimes willing to offer. Vulnerability is the first thing that I want to see in you and the last thing I want you to see in me. Now, let me tell you a couple of um, familiar stories here. Um, I grew up knowing these stories. I heard them all in isolation from one another, so I'm going to tell them briefly and quickly because a lot of you probably know them, but in case you don't, here's from Luke 15. Story number one. A man has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them, and he leaves the 99 in the field, and he goes in search of the one lost sheep. And when he finds it, he goes home, he calls his neighbors and his friends, and he has a party and he celebrates because he found his one lost sheep. Story number one. Story number two. A woman has 10 silver coins, and she's in her house. She loses one of them. This is probably a nightmare of an experience. Okay, we've all been there. Maybe some of you lost your ID in your room this morning. You know what it's like to lose something, and you know its general location, but you literally can't find it anywhere. Okay, this is this woman. She has 10 silver coins. She's lost one of them. She literally destroys the place. She turns it upside down. She's sweeping, looking for this one lost coin, and when she finds it, she calls her friends, her family, her relatives, her neighbors, they come together and they celebrate because this one lost coin 
has now been found. Here's story number three in Luke 15. Maybe one we're more familiar with, the prodigal son. We know this son, um, he asks his father for his inheritance early, and he goes off into a distant land, and he squanders it. And when he's reaching the end of his rope, he thinks to himself, surely my father will take me back as a servant in his house. So he goes crawling back home. But his father sees him at a distance. He runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And he calls his servants and he says, bring the fattened calf. We're going to kill it because we're having a party tonight. He calls his servants and his neighbors and his friends. And they have this big party. These are all in Luke 15. Let me retrace my steps. One lost sheep. One lost coin. One lost son. This is the thing that all of these stories have in common. Like, I don't need to prove to you that the way that we celebrate is in the context of community, right? So the woman doesn't find her lost coin and sit at home and just cheer for herself by herself, right? It's so innate. This, like, desire to celebrate with one another just erupts out of us. It's how we're made. It's the same reason why, um, gosh, if you're at a baseball game, maybe you hate baseball. I don't know. I mean... Can we talk about the fact that there's like 160-some games in a season, and they're all like four hours long? I don't need to get into it. But even if you hate, even if you absolutely hate baseball, let's say for seven innings, nothing has happened, and it's the top of the eighth, and somebody hits a home run, you, you, you've come to the baseball game by yourself, but when somebody hits a home run, you stand up and you start high-fiving people all over the place, whether you know them or not, right? That's, that's what happens. That's what we do. That's the way, it's the way that we're made. We celebrate together. It's the reason why um, when we get engaged, our friends throw parties for us. It's the reason why, hopefully, as children, our parents put our good grades and our crappy artwork up on the fridge, right? <laughs> we celebrate together. We celebrate in the context of community. And what's my point? Here's, here's my point. If, if in the context of community, we are people who celebrate we celebrate life's highs and life's joys together, then it must also be in the context of community that we bring our disappointments and our hurts and our pain. Like, we can't have one without the other. But the problem is that <laughs> vulnerability is the first thing I want to see in you and the last thing I want you to see in me. You don't have to raise your hand, actually don't. But uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've heard this. Um, see, we have these ways of protecting ourselves from vulnerability, protecting ourselves in a relationship. We all do it in different ways. I have my own ways of doing it. But here's a couple of, of examples. In the last couple of weeks, I've heard people say this so often. It sounds like this. Oh my gosh, I'm such a perfectionist. Right? Have you heard people say that? Or like, oh my gosh, I'm such a people pleaser. Like, like it's a, um, a badge of honor of some sort. We've equated excellence and perfectionism as the same thing, and they are not the same at all, because here's what perfectionism does. It says, if I do everything perfectly, if I look perfect, then I can avoid a lot of blame and judgment and shame. That's perfectionism. It's just armory, protecting ourselves from being vulnerable, because we're really afraid, I think, that people might find out that we're hollow or empty inside, and so we keep up this front, right? That's perfectionism. That's just one. Here's another one. This is a, this is a Brene Brownism, if I can, if I can say that. Um, maybe you're someone who likes to hotwire connection with people. 
right? So you say like, oh, we've only known each other for like two or three weeks, maybe even less time than that. And if I tell this person my deepest, darkest secret, then we'll be BFFs forever. And you like kickstart, jumpstart a relationship. Here's what happens when you do that. You test the tolerance and the loyalty of a relationship. And you, you, you come across like you're being vulnerable and actually what you end up doing is using vulnerability. And to be clear, being vulnerable and using vulnerability are not all the same thing. Like I think we've all been in small groups where uh, you have that one person who like completely overshares. See, you're laughing, it's so true. There's that one person who overshares and actually what happens is the rest of the group is stretched beyond their ability to connect with that person and that's why it's awkward, right? Because that person is using vulnerability instead of actually being vulnerable. These are not the same. How about, how about this one? This is like, I, I wanna say probably the most common one on our campus, numbing. And the truth is that when we live in relationship with one another, whether it's your best friend, um, my husband, Michael, um, <laughs> the truth is that when we live in relationship with others, we get hurt. We get hurt feelings, we get disappointed, we have disappointed expectations. That is normal, a normal flow of relationship. But if you're someone who tends to numb, then perhaps what you might be doing is trying to deaden the pain of those hurtful experiences to protect yourself. That's numbing. We do it in all sorts of ways, all sorts of ways, very creative ways. Um, there's the crazy busy, just filling up your life so much that you literally have no time to process your life and you like it that way. The crazy busy, um, there's video games. Don't get me wrong, like I know video games are fun. There's a certain part of it that's fun. But some people use video games to check into an alternate reality because they're not super fond of the reality that they're in. That's just numbing. Some people fill up their lives with social events. Some people cut. Some people drink. Some people look at porn. Some people overeat. Some people undereat. All these things we do to build up that casket or coffin, right? It becomes armor to us so that we don't actually have to be vulnerable. They protect us in the immediate, right? They seem to take away immediate pain, but in the long term, they actually damage us. Because to love it all is to be vulnerable. So my question is, if vulnerability is something that we say that we value, which I'm taking a leap, maybe you don't value that in your relationships, and so I'm taking a leap here. But if vulnerability is something that we say that we value, why is there such a disparity? Why is there such a disconnect between what we say we value and what we actually practice? So vulnerability. So if vulnerability is something that we say that we value, then why is there such a disconnect between what we value and what we practice? What keeps us, right? Uh, I graduated a number of years ago, just a couple, from Spring Arbor University in Michigan. Anybody from the Mitten? Just do, just do this with me. Just do this with me. It's the best, isn't it? People make fun of us. Uh, but my senior year, I had the privilege of living in a, uh, 
We call them K-houses. Now, the K stands for koinonia, which is a Greek term uh, for like this true, authentic form of community. And I stayed in K-1. We had about 12 houses around the edge of campus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they were for upperclassmen. And so they were, they were on the edge of campus, but in the neighborhood, kind of similar to the mission of the townhouses, is to kind of be a good neighbor to this community and the community around us. Um, but I got a chance to live with six guys, or five other guys. I was the sixth guy in this house on campus. So picture like a two-story kind of 1950s, 1960s house. And when you walked in, there was like a, a dining room and, and kitchen to your right. And then on the left was a living room with a front room that we put all our music instruments and that was kind of our jam space. And then you go straight up the stairs and at the top of the landing of the stairs to the left was a room where we shoved all of our desks. And to the right, around the kind of the railing was a room, was our bedroom where we shoved six beds into one room. We all slept in the same room. Uh, I've already seen one of the townhouses does this. Uh, it, is, it is awesome and terrifying all at the same time. Imagine six dudes going to bed at the same time. First of all, positives, right? You get to talk about everything in life, like things you don't understand, or at least we guys don't, like God and women. <laughs> Pretty much two things. And then also you get these really funny things that happen, like people talking in their sleep or sleepwalking. Even, I remember one night in particular, um, out, or I guess one morning after when we all woke up, somebody was like, dude, did you hear that last night? It's like, no. I said, yeah, last night I heard somebody just, like, I think it was a guy named Austin, was like banging on the wall and he said, put that tiger away. Like in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of his sleep. And then, he, and then he knocked on the wall again and went, mm, I'm liking that. It's like, this is, this is community, right? Some, you live in this. If you have a roommate, you know how this goes. Uh, maybe you don't sleep talk. Whoa, uh, cut out. But there's weird things that happen. That community, though, those us six guys, man, it was messy. That year, that last year of college was so, so messy and so, so good all at the same time. Like, we all came, I don't know how it worked, but we all came from very, very different backgrounds. Like there was very little overlap in our lives, the six of us. And so um, really, when you bring that many people together from that uh, many different kind of backgrounds, and some of you live in this right now, it just sometimes works great and sometimes doesn't work at all. So, man, there were times where we laughed, times where we cried, times where we argued, times where we yelled at each other. Uh, we talked openly with each other about our struggles in life, and it wasn't easy to get to that point, though. And you, we're in our, what, first month of school, month and a half of school here, and you're going to find by the end of the year some of the people you live with are going to be the closest people for the rest of your life. But it won't, it won't happen if you don't help it happen. It's not just going to happen. See, for me, with those, with those five other guys, we had to make the intentional choice to, to live with each other and like rip open our souls and say, here I am, look at me, look at all of the junk in my life, look at all the stuff of my life. And it required the person on the flip side of that conversation to be like, dude, thanks for opening yourself up. I'm going to do the same and we're going to journey through this life, through this year together. And this wasn't easy for me to do. I, some of you may have grown up in... Uh, I guess, family situations or friends situations like I did. I grew up where the men in my life, they weren't very vulnerable, at least not in healthy ways. The only emotions I understood growing up were um, anger and frustration, really. 
I love you were not words spoken very often by the men in my life to me. And so I've been, when I found God at 15, I had this journey where I had to understand God as Father because my dad, I know he loves me, but he doesn't know Jesus. He didn't grow up in a family that knew Jesus. And I could work this thing backwards and see my grandparents and my great-grandparents and how that kind of generational um, schema got passed down all the way to me. And I get to be a part of breaking that cycle. But I didn't learn how to be vulnerable well because vulnerability for me was attached to weakness. And maybe that's the case for some of you here. College, though, was a time where I learned that that wasn't true. I learned that vulnerability in healthy ways is the mark of a Christian, in healthy ways. My best, when I've been able to, like my little sister going to college, my two little sisters going to college, and um, even some uh, people that I got to be a youth leader for, like they go into college and they'll say, hey, dude, what's your best advice for college? My best advice is that you make an active decision into what you make your community look like. What you put into your time here at Indiana Westland will be what you get out of it. Good things will not just happen. This is not a movie. This is not a fairy tale. This is real life. An interesting thing about that house I lived in, K1, on campus, is that there was actually a seventh guy uh, in the house. Uh, His name is Damon Seacott, and he's the chief of staff of Spring Arbor University. He actually used to be an RD here back when Carmen was a guy's hall. And Damon is this 50-something-year-old guy um, who his, his, I guess, ministry in life or his, his passion in life is to help young men become young or become men, mature believers of God. And uh, so Dame, the house is actually Damon's house, but also the university's. It's a very unique situation, um, really cool situation. So we six guys lived with Damon in Damon's house. And um, it was great because Damon's not in the middle of all of our relational like weirdness and turbulence sometimes. Damon is just, he's got, he's got a bedroom about the size of a dorm room in Bowman, like off of the living room. And that's everything. He lives a very simplistic lifestyle. And he has everything he owns in that room. And so there were countless nights where Damon would be hanging out in the living room with us guys and we'd be talking about stupid things. And Damon would be able to speak wisdom into our life for a few reasons. Number one, he wasn't in the middle of everything, like I said. Number two, he's farther along in the journey of life than any of the rest of us. He's been following God longer than we've been alive. And so in your time here, once again, my situation was very unique. Um, I don't think you have to move in with somebody older than you to have good community and work yourself towards good community. But it does mean that you need someone who's older and farther along in the journey of life than you. Somebody who knows Jesus better than you know Jesus. So how can your college or your life experience really be great? How can your time here be awesome? Like Liz introed, by taking the jump into vulnerability in healthy ways. By intending to engage your environment with people around you, and it's going to be painful, and it's going to hurt sometimes. You will not get out of your time here if you pursue good community without a few scars. You won't. That's not such a bad thing. Because people do not change and they do not grow via apathy, right? We grow and we change and we look more like Jesus when we're vulnerable with ourselves and with others around us. 
If you read, if you read the book of Acts, and even in the, in the early parts of the church, like, there's a lot of vulnerability, a lot of authentic community going on at that time. Why are we so afraid of that now? Well, because we have to fight things true to the human experience, right? Like a tendency to hide or a tendency to be on the surface. You could go your entire year here and never really know your roommate pretty easily. So how do you have good community with others? First, you must have good community with yourself. You've got to be vulnerable with yourself. A guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. Many of you have heard of it. It's basically a book on community. Um, And in the book Life Together, he has a chapter called The Life Alone. And in the meat of that chapter, he says this. Bonhoeffer says, Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Whoever cannot stand being in community should be aware of being alone. Does solitude drive you nuts? How hard is it for you to be around just yourself? Are there things that you haven't faced in your life and done the hard work of working through them? So when you're alone, right, your mind is overwhelmed and all you want to do is not be alone. Or maybe you're the kind of person who just sweeps things under the rug or pushes them out of your mind and pretends they don't exist. Or maybe you're the kind of person who throws yourself into people or into community to feel better without ever having done the hard work of knowing how to be vulnerable with yourself first. Bonhoeffer continues on in that chapter and says this. He says, Those who take refuge in community while fleeing from themselves are misusing it to indulge in empty talk and distraction. No matter how spiritual this idle talk and distraction may appear. Here's the kicker. He finishes this paragraph with this. He says, In reality, they are not seeking community at all but only a thrill that will allow them to forget their isolation for a short time. See, for those of us struggling uh, with being authentic with even in ourselves, it seems that our attempt at being in good community can be self-serving at best. We smokescreen our insecurities with things like smiles, with jokes, with egos, with stories, with talking too much, with numbing. Or we get vulnerable in really inappropriate places like social media. Like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, fill in the blank, can all be wonderful tools. Um, But if you puke up your life into those sources in order to feel affirmed, you're in a state of unhealth. If you throw something out on Twitter in 140 characters or less, hoping that it gets retweeted or favorited enough times to feel good about yourself, that's not healthy. And you need to work on that. And there are plenty of people in this community to help you through that journey. Or how about texting? Right? Texting is a great tool. I consider it information transfer. But if the bulk of a relationship happens, if like substantial conversation happens through texting all the time, it's probably not the most substantial of relationships. Now, I know there are situations where texting is just easier. You can't get a call through, and so you text people. But if you hide behind your phone screen because you don't know how to say things in person, what does that say about you? Do you fit into any of Brene Brown's categories, like perfectionism, hot wiring connection with others, or numbing? So how do we have vulnerable in community in healthy ways? We've got to be vulnerable with ourselves. 
right? We've said that a thousand times this morning. Maybe, though, there are people in your life who don't help you on this journey to, to vulnerability, and maybe you need to back off some of those relationships for a time, or maybe cut them off completely. Maybe you need to go practice solitude, so then you can learn to truly be with others. Or maybe you need to get some real accountability, or maybe get into professional counseling and work through some of the stuff that you've been sweeping under the rug since you were a kid or a teenager. Maybe you need to stop putting up armor and actually let some good people into your lives. Quit letting in the bad people because it's easier. Or maybe you're putting up armor between you and your creator. You think, and I have been there, and I am there a lot of days, you think you can hide from the maker of all things seen and unseen. Are you kidding me? But then we read things in scripture like Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And we think we can hide from God. What a ridiculous human notion. But we still do it. So where are you? This morning, right now, take, a, take a, kind of a self-inventory. How much have you really taken a look at yourself and been vulnerable with yourself? So you can truly be vulnerable with others in healthy ways because without vulnerability, true, authentic community cannot be achieved. Bonhoeffer closes his chapter in Life Together with this. He says, Those who return to the community of Christians who live together after a successful day Bring with them the blessing of their solitude. But they themselves receive anew the blessing of community. So it's time to tell your story, guys and gals, to yourself, to others, and to God. Because all of our stories, individually and as a large community, fits into the story of God, which is a story of old things being made new, dead things coming to life, and lost things getting found. And that is the community in life that God designed us for. Because to love it all is to be vulnerable. Let's pray. God, just thanks for this day. Thanks for another day of life to wake up, to have a new grace. Help us not to forget that the moment we take a breath when we wake up is grace from you. And for every student in this room and staff, help us to learn what it means to be vulnerable in healthy ways. First of all, with you. Help us to get to a point where we can open ourselves up and listen to the words you want to speak to us and let you heal us from the inside. And for those that are lonely this morning, the community sounds like a terrifying experience or one that they've tried and failed or seem to fail in, I pray that you comfort them with your peace and that you bring someone along in their life who knows you, that they can be in community with, authentic community centered around you. Amen. Go in peace.